Father, we do thank you for the advent of your Son, Jesus Christ, that he came, God with us, came to redeem us, came to pay the penalty for our sin, came to produce righteousness, came to demonstrate his truth and his power over sin and death by being resurrected on the third day. And so, Lord, we celebrate the advent of Christ, not simply because a baby was born, but because Christ was born. Christ was born, the Emmanuel, the Messiah. He came to live a life, die a death, and be resurrected up to your right hand where he reigns eternally. We worship it now. Help us do this by learning and listening attentively to your word read and spoken. We pray that we would be changed because of it. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it's always a blessing to be with you on the Lord's Day. Please open your Bibles to Matthew 26. We continue our study through the book of Matthew. This week I really was tempted to shift gears and do some Advent messages. Pause Matthew. I haven't preached from Luke chapter 2 in some years. So uh, I started to look at that and I started drooling over all the wonderful texts and stories out of Luke chapter 2. Plus, I looked at our pace right now, and if we keep our pace right now, on Christmas Sunday, I would preach about Judas hanging himself. That's not very festive. So, we are going to do that, but not today, not this week. Next week, perhaps, we'll jump into some Advent messages and uh, touch on that. Main reason we're not going to do it this week is because when I read this passage and began studying it, it just grabbed me. Particularly, it grabbed me in terms of the injustice of the trials that Jesus faced. What do we call the courts and the judges and the lawyers, the defenders, the legal code? We call it the justice system. Because the whole idea is that it exists to ensure justice. It's there to apply fair legal standards, and this should have been true for the Roman justice system. It should have also been true for the Jewish justice system, and especially true for the Jewish justice system because, in essence, it had been built upon the Bible, on the law that Moses, God had given through Moses. Jesus spent time before both of these two justice systems, if you follow the gospel Gospel accounts carefully, what you find out is that Jesus had essentially six trials, three before each justice system, three before the Jewish religious justice system, and three before the Roman justice system. And if you follow all these trials and you read about them, it undoubtedly prompts us to cry out, where is the justice? There's no justice. There's no equanimity here, no fairness in this process at all. And you add to the whole thing that not only was Jesus guiltless of what they accused him of, he was completely guiltless. Now, my parents, when they raised me, they were pretty fair, they were just, they were not overbearing, they certainly weren't abusing, but we did receive punishment from time to time. And, and a couple of times, maybe once or twice in my entire rearing, did I receive a punishment that 
maybe was a little unjust, maybe it was for something I didn't do, or maybe it was something that was confused, some details, but it never really bothered me because I knew there were like 10 things I wasn't punished for. (laughs) Not so for Jesus. Jesus suffered unjustly in the most extreme and infinite way you can possibly imagine this. He shouldn't have suffered any kind of punishment for anything because he'd never done any wrong. Here he is, Jesus, the perfectly just, the perfectly righteous. He violated no code, no law. In fact, he came in perfect fulfillment of the law of God. What does a human race do to someone like that? Well, we try him and we kill him unjustly. Where is the justice? But it had to be this way, didn't it? There is no way that the human race could get the just, the righteous, perfect Son of God on the cross unless our process was unjust. The only way we could do that is through false pretenses, through bribes and skewed justice, which indeed is not justice at all. It is the pinnacle of injustice. Now, this horrifying injustice is what this passage is all about. Matthew wanted his readers to be aghast, flabbergasted how wrong this all is, how full of sin, how unjust this is. Now, we all have that feeling. In fact, the more you watch the news channels, the more you have that feeling, the rage, the outrage, the shock. This is unjust. This is not right. In fact, these news channels make a lot of money, making you feel that way, draw you back the next day with the feelings of injustice. Well, there should not be any feelings compared to what we see here. The injustice, the unfairness of this whole thing, I believe is the goal of Matthew here in this passage. Let me read it to us. This is the 57th through the 68th verse of Matthew chapter 26. Follow along. I'll read aloud. And those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and Going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? And Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the, are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and, the, and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is that who struck you? This is the word of God. 
As I said, by most accounts, Jesus suffered six trials, six consecutive trials, beginning sometime in the middle of the night, Thursday night, lasting all the way into Friday morning. He stood up six times to answer allegations brought against him by the Jewish leadership. The first three trials were before these very leaders, the Jewish spiritual judicial leaders of Israel. Annas, who was the outgoing high priest, probably held at his house. Caiaphas, the incoming or acting high priest. And then the Sanhedrin, which was the religious and political leadership of Israel. And after those three religious trials, they turned him over to the Romans. That's where he stood before Pilate. Pilate sent him to Herod. He stood before Herod. Herod sent him back to Pilate, and so he stood before Pilate once again. Matthew does not break all this down. He neatly summarizes these two sections of trials, the religious trials, into one section. That's what we read today. And the second group of trials, the civil trials or political trials, roughly verses 1 to 26 of the next chapter. By the time simply the trial portion was over, these six trials, by the time they were over, Jesus had been beaten with fists, spat upon, insulted, screamed at, and finally, the last part of the Roman justice system required him to be tied to a pole and essentially have his skin removed from his body by whips. Again, this is the trial portion, not the punishment, not the sentence, not the crucifixion. This was simply the trial portion. In these, the religious trials that we're looking at today, Matthew reported that the only way the religious leaders could establish fault is by false testimony, verse 59, offered by false witnesses, verse 60. 60. Matthew said they found none, and clearly what he means is they found no legitimate witnesses, no coherent testimony, only paid liars. In other words, nothing was established to condemn him. But that wasn't the purpose of the trials. The purpose was simply to con condemn him regardless of the evidence. In fact, if you do a little study of Jewish and religious laws and customs of that day, what you'll find is these Jewish leader leaders were in violation of numerous laws that they themselves were supposed to be experts in. Let me just remind you who these people are. Uh, beginning in Deuteronomy, God set forth some principles about justice in the people of God, guiding the people of God. Eventually, it evolved in every community with 120 more heads of families. You would have a group of 23 on a religious justice panel, heads of families. These 23 men would be a council in every one of these communities called a Sanhedrin. They would have been leaders, rabbis, Pharisees, scribes, lawyers, wealthy men. They served the people by acting as sort of a justice system, a local justice system for that community. They would usually meet in the synagogue. In fact, most of them would have some sort of position in the synagogue. Again, Jewish life, civil life, was tied to the religious life. There's really something that they would tie to their own worship. No real distinction between civil and religious as far as the Jews go, all relative to the Old Testament law, to what had been given to them in Scripture. And so they would have these men, these leaders, these Bible scholars, as it were, to help them know what the violations were, to help them 
adjudicate, to help them even know what sentencing should be carried out, what kind of sacrifice, what kind of punishment, and the, the law requires for these kind of things. One of these men would be called a chief ruler. I mention this because sometimes in other places of the Gospels you'll come across passages that talk about the chief rulers. Now you know, you know who, to whom that refers. Very important in these cities, leaders sitting on these councils, these Sanhedrins, almost like judges, very influential leaders in their community. Again, tied to the synagogue, tied to the spiritual leadership, tied to the worship of the people of God. Now, if in a small community an issue could not be resolved by the local Sanhedrin, or if the accused made an appeal, they would take the case to, the, to Jerusalem where there was the great Sanhedrin. Great, referring to the size and responsibility, not because they're just a great group of guys. We'll find that out today. This is the Sanhedrin that is referred to in our passage and in the Bible when it talks about Jesus' trials. The great Sanhedrin was made up of 24 priests, 24 elders. These would be leaders in synagogues. Probably some of them served as the rulers, the ruling uh, chief rulers in these communities. The great Sanhedrin was made up these, of these elders, of priests, and of also 22 scribes. Again, scribes would be like Bible scholars. Sometimes they're called lawyers in your Bibles. People who are experts in understanding the Mosaic law. Then they would also add the chief priest. The serving chief priest would be a part of this. So it would be 71 men, all priests, elders, and scribes. And these fellows, kind of like the Supreme Court here in the U.S., were not supposed to be making law but rather they would interpret the law and apply the law and its punishments appropriately. And for that reason, as time went on, the Israelites made a certain level of, of rules, of laws that applied to how the Sanhedrin itself would operate, how the, the justice system would operate. They couldn't just be doing whatever they wanted. There ought to be some sort of standards. And so they came up with a number of rules or laws to guide them and to ensure Justice would happen on that high level of the great Sanhedrin. And what we find out today as we read this passage is that the Sanhedrin, including the former high priest Annas and the current high priest Caiaphas, they were all operating in violation of these basic rules of justice. Let me give you an example of some of these rules and show you how they were violating all of these things. One rule is that no trial was ever to be held during a feast time. There should not be any trial during a feast time. The reason is, is that during a feast time, God required people to feast. They require, he required them to eat and drink. And particularly during a time of a, uh, uh, a trial involving capital punishment or death, execution, they're required, one of their rules said, is that they should fast for at least 24 hours. 
And so the result was, whenever you had a serious trial, especially one like this, you would not have this trial. You would postpone the trial until after the feast was over so that you could do diligence and you could look into the issue and you could then go home and fast for 24 hours. It was a serious thing to put someone to death. And so you couldn't have one of these kind of trials during a feast. Of course, this happened all during the feast of Passover. This is the first violation we can... See, another rule was that each member of the Sanhedrin was to have the opportunity to vote individually to convict or to acquit. I'm not sure how they did that secret ballot or each would have an opportunity to raise their hand and explain, ask questions. We do know of at least two who did not acquiesce. We don't know if they were there voting against with their arms or maybe they said something. We don't have any record of that, but... They certainly were not involved in the deliberations here. They're not mentioned at all when there was deliberations. We only found out later that Nicodemus and uh, Joseph of Arimathea did not acquiesce to this judgment. There's no place in this narrative or any of the other gospel narratives of individual vote. There's no place of debate or any kind of deliberation. What we see here is a violation because Jesus was condemned not with individual votes, but with shouting. He's blasphemed, the chief priest yells. And they all sort of pile on and start yelling and shouting. And I suppose it was over by that point. There's no individual vote. There's no debate. There's no discussion. The high priest shouts, tears his robe. He deserves death, verse 66. This brings up another violation. If the death penalty were issued, if that were to be the sentence in any kind of judgment, they must wait the rest of the day and then the entire next night, not until the following day could they carry out the sentence of death. Well, as you know, this justice, this injustice happened all the way into the morning hours and it was just a few hours later that Jesus was put on the cross. In fact, if you want to mark in your mind, this justice lasted into early morning. It was late morning that they put Jesus on the, Christ, on the cross, just a few hours later. Fourth violation. This is not so much from Scripture, a scriptural violation, but it had to do with Roman rule. The Jews, according to the Romans, had no authority to put people to death. The Jews could not execute people. That was the law. That was the rule. They could not execute people, but they had figured out a way to trick Pilate and others, found a loophole essentially, to get people killed. All they had to do was convince the Roman ruler, the local Roman ruler, that whoever it is you want dead, you convince him that he is guilty of sedition, the level of Barabbas, who most likely was a murderer, an insurrectionist. If you could convince the local Roman prelate that that's what this person was doing, they would be scared enough, they would not want that person around, they would not want some sort of uh, gaze from the Roman Empire upon them, they would be uh, embarrassed to find out there's any kind of sedition, and so they were all too happy to put someone to death, even if they did not find any reason for that person to be dead. So they violated this, they violated it with with, uh, lies. Another violation, no trial was to ever be held at night. Had to do this in the daytime for people to come and see and watch 
and listen. It's supposed to be open, an open trial. This was not open. This was behind closed doors. This was in the courtyard of the high priest in the middle of the night. Another violation, the accused would be given counsel or representation. Of course, we see that Jesus had none. They're asking him questions directly. They're asking him to indict himself. And in violation 7, by my count, according to Deuteronomy, really several chapters, 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20, over and over we learn there are to be no bribes. There are to be no money exchanged, no money involved, so the witnesses would not be motivated by anything but truth. Now we find out afterwards that the Sanhedrin, including the high priest, was all too happy to pay for people to testify against Jesus, particularly about his death and resurrection. That serves a reason when it talks about the witnesses here, the false witnesses here, these two most likely would have been paid. It's not just a violation of their rules and laws that govern their justice system, this is also a violation of the ninth commandment. Do not bear false witness. Well, there are several other violations. You can be sure about that. This whole process... In other words, was a sham. People in the first century, these Jews who read Matthew's gospel first, and maybe they weren't aware of all the different rules and regulations, but they certainly would have known a few. To wake up one morning and find out that someone's condemned for death would have been unusual. It would have been a violation. They would have understood this. They would have read Matthew's account, and they would have been aghast at the violations, the number of violations that these so-called spiritual leaders of Israel committed. Again, the point is, Matthew's showing us that we see this as a, ma a massive violation of justice. And worst of all, it is an injustice perpetrated by the religious leaders of Israel against the Son of God. The very ones who were tasked by God to establish and uphold justice and point people to the Messiah... Not only did they not do that, they used their justice system to kill the Messiah. Let's look at our text again, verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders had gathered. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. Going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Matthew's foreshadowing what Peter's going to do, right? Keep that idea of Peter there in your mind. We'll return to it at some point. Now we get to Matthew's summary of the kangaroo court held there in the house of the high priest. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least two came forward and said, This man said, I'm able to destroy the temple and to rebuild it in three days. Again, you have Annas, you have Caiaphas. The Sanhedrin, they're all separate but linked, all in the same location for these three trials. This is what Matthew is summarizing. Now, just note here, there was no violation of anything, no law perpetrated. This accusation that we hear these false witnesses utter, there's no law, there's no biblical law, there's no law at all that's being perpetrated by Jesus saying this. What they're referring to is something that Jesus had said several times in his ministry, probably from the very early stages of his ministry. In fact, we find out about this the first time in 
John's Gospel, chapter 2. And Jesus had cleansed the temple. Jesus cleansed the temple twice, once at the beginning of the, his ministry, once at the end of his ministry, almost as if to demonstrate that nothing had changed. After three years of having the Messiah preaching and blessing and healing and doing all these wonderful things, nothing had changed. In fact, if anything, it was worse. This is after the first cleansing of the temple. Verse 18, the Jews, the people, the leaders there are trying to question Jesus on why he felt like he had the authority to go in there and do that. Verse 18 of John 2, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, demonstrate that you have the authority to come in here and do this. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. In other words, this truth planted itself in the hearts of the disciples. They didn't completely understand it until Jesus was raised. It was something that was revealed for the disciples, for the benefit of the followers of Christ. It was something that, uh, a truth, kind of like the parables. Sometimes the parables were, were given to, to veil truth for the unbelieving and to reveal truth for those who are believing. And this is essentially what Jesus was doing. He was giving his disciples truth and veiling truth from the unbelievers. He's not talking about destroying physically the temple with his own hands. He was talking about his body. Back in Matthew, you can hear the reasoning of these false witnesses. Maybe they were approached by one of the priests, maybe one of the other spiritual leaders there. They're approached and they were given some money and just come up with something. Surely you can make up an accusation. And these two witnesses talking to one another, maybe one of them said, what are you going to say? And the other one says, well... I don't know, what are you going to say? And Well, I heard one time that he said he would destroy the temple in three days, build it back. So maybe it sort of sounds like sedition. Maybe he's wanting to destroy the temple. Another witness says, oh, that's good. Can I use that too? So they come and they report this. But it's just useless in terms of evidence. It doesn't have any kind of legality to it, but that becomes sort of a, a thing for the people. You hear it again when he's on the cross. Oh, you're going to destroy the temple and build it back. People had no clue, no evidence, but the best they could come up with was this statement that he'd made before. All right, verse 62. The high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. More on that a little bit later. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on clouds of heaven. The high priest basically asked Jesus two questions about his identity. Are you the Son of God? Meaning, are you divine? Do you have all the rights and privileges and power of your Father? That's question one. Question two, are you the promised one? Are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? The Old Testament prophets prophesied. 
Now, Jesus' answer is absolutely brilliant. He had, of course, throughout his ministry, acknowledged his deity, the Son of God, the promised Son of Man. I and the Father are one, he said. His use of God's title, I am. In fact, the chief priest who asked this question was there just a few minutes or perhaps a few hours before when they were in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus said, I am, and they all fell down. They knew Jesus' use of the divine title, I am. Jesus, when he asked Peter what he and the other disciples would say about Jesus' identity, Peter, of course, declares that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one, and the Son of God, deity. Jesus, throughout his ministry, received worship as God. He received praise as God. He healed. He had the authority as God. In fact, the ones that bear a lot of witness about Jesus, ironically, are the demons whom he encountered. And they would say, we know who you are. Please don't torture us. He had the authority over demons as only God would. So Jesus is not sidestepping the issue. He's said what he's going to say. In fact, you don't, what he say, don't say what he's going to say next if he was trying to avoid punishment to sidestep the issue. That's not what Jesus is up to. So why did Jesus answer this way? Frankly, I think Jesus is toying with this wicked man. Are you Christ, the Son of God? You said it. Came off your lips. You're the one saying I'm God, the Messiah. I think Jesus is simply proving his supreme ability and wisdom as God, the Messiah. If there's any doubt that he claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the next phrase is, it clears it up. I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming down, coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting from Psalm 110, and he's quoting from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. These are Old Testament verses about the divine right and authority of the Son of God, about the deity of the Son of God and his power seated next to the right hand of God the Father, meaning he has all the power and authority of God the Father. And there's no doubt that this is what Jesus meant, and this is what they understood him to say because of the way they responded. Verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and says, he has uttered blasphemy. He's not simply saying, oh, I'm a child of God, like everybody's a child of God. No, he is saying he is deity. He's not saying, well, I'm one of many people who would come and help people like Moses or others. No, he is saying he is the Messiah. And that's why the priest tears his robes and cries out. He's uttering blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. So there's no deliberation. There's no discussion. There's no any kind of uh, uh, argument or debate or any kind of opportunity for Jesus. They just ask him these questions and then shouts and screams and gets everybody hyped up and they all start crying out for his blood. See, they knew of his claim of deity. They knew of his claim for messiahship. They understood, they had decided already before Jesus walked in there, before they'd even arrested Jesus, they had decided some time before. In fact, you could argue they decided early on in Jesus' ministry, some years before, when it says they began to plot how to put him away. They had decided that day they would kill him. Again, not by 
individual vote, not by discussion, not by logic, not by reason. They decided long ago they wanted Jesus dead. And just in case you might wonder, these are civil, educated, pious intellectuals. I'm sure they went around with their hands cupped like this, looking very somber. They lose it. Last couple of verses. They spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? I mean, this is what they wanted all along. And their godless immaturity finally surfaced to the top, and everybody could see it, how angry, how frustrated, how bitter they were towards the Son of God. Well, this brings me to several points of applications. If you're taking notes, maybe you want to write these down. Would you know, number one, the brutal injustice of Israel's leaders. The brutal injustice of Israel's leaders. I believe this is, in part, Matthew's goal here. He wants us to see how unjust this whole charade was. These legal experts did anything but follow the law. These Bible experts did anything but follow Scripture. These, quote, holy men were anything but holy. They were full of rage. They were full of hatred. They were full of childish petulance. So that by the end, we, hit it, we see him screaming, spitting, hitting, mocking. See who they really are. Spiritual and civil leaders of Israel in that day were not pious men. They were not people committed to Scripture, truth, reason. Definitely not in pursuit of kindness and love, reason. That's the image they wanted to portray to everyone. But the truth came out when they faced someone who is true, Jesus Christ. And out of their hearts, their mouths spoke, their fists flew, their spit came out, their anger was revealed. Zooming out theologically a little further, we have to understand there's no way, I mentioned this earlier, there's no way a fair, tempered, just process would have led to the conviction of the Son of God. Jesus was wholly perfect. He was kind. He was good. He was loving. He was unimpeachable. He was beyond reproach. Nobody could have brought anything to Him without it being unfair or unjust. If there had been even a a moment of pause for for justice to catch up, to to think about what's right and wrong, if there had been any moment for that, Jesus would have been acquitted. It would have ended the whole charade. No, this had to be wicked from the start to the finish. I think this is Matthew's baseline application here. His goal for us is to see the brutal injustice of these leaders, these spiritual leaders no less. Well, there's another point of application here. Up in uh, 58, Matthew mentioned Peter, the coward. He's following at a distance and sort of as a representative of all the disciples, we can assume there were probably other disciples who were doing the same thing. These are his disciples. They're supposed to follow Jesus, and they're watching all of this happen. And so another application is pretty clear here. What they're watching is an example for them particularly in the future when they are persecuted. So number two, Jesus is the disciples' model for being persecuted. Jesus gives us a model 
of martyrdom, a model of someone who suffered well. This is how we are to suffer. This is how we are to face persecution. Now, sometimes people get a little bit saucy here. They say in uh, verse 63 that he remained silent, but then he speaks. Well, did he remain silent or did he speak, they ask? Or perhaps they quote the prophecy is specifically from Isaiah 53, verse 7, which says he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. And they say, which is it? Did he open his mouth or did he keep his mouth closed? Or perhaps they quote 1 Peter 2.23, which says he did not respond when they reviled him. But clearly he does speak in this passage. And so they say, aha, how sloppy and untrue the Bible is. Can't trust it, clearly. They don't even know what they're talking about. They can't get their story straight, whether or not Jesus was quiet or he spoke. I'll take you to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 26, verses 4 and 5 says this. Listen carefully. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Hermeneutics professors love this one. I feel like it's a conundrum. Are we supposed to answer a fool or not answer a fool? Which one are you supposed to do? Now, the pithy way the writer puts it makes it sort of concise and memorable. That's what the genre of Proverbs is all about. It's an adage. It's a pithy saying, memorable saying. And the point is, is not that you never say anything whatsoever. The point is that sometimes you must remain quiet, and sometimes when you say something, you must say the right thing. Make sure that when you speak, you say the right thing. Don't get in the gutter, gutter with the fool. Answer wisely. The passage I just mentioned that some people quote to disbelieve the Scripture, the passage from Peter gives us a clue, 1 Peter 2.23, when he, he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to the ju who judges justly. In other words, didn't say he was completely silent. He said he didn't revile. He was silent in terms of getting in the gutter and responding tit for tat. He was silent in the sense he didn't wrestle and debate with these fools. They, he knew that the decision had been made. He knew where they were, where their hearts were. They reviled him. He'd proven he was far wiser than them, far more authoritative, far more powerful. He'd even proven throughout his ministry that he could answer their accusations and make them look like fools. But he never got in the gutter with them. He never insulted them as they did him. So in that sense, he remained silent. He did not respond with derision or mockery or reviling. So in that sense, he was silent. What a great model for us when we're per persecuted. In fact, I think as 21st century Americans, this is sort of the most likely way we'll face persecution, right? Words, mockery, maybe at worst it would impact your job. People mock us as Bible-believing Christians. They can ridicule us. There's hardly a news program nowadays that does not go through its full cycle and not somehow mock people like us. In fact, it's sort of a joke now in our culture. You dare not mock anyone. You dare not mock their race, their beliefs, their culture, their bizarre gender identities that they've taken on, unless, of course, they're white conservatives. If they believe the Bible, then you can mock them all you want. How are we to respond to mocking? 
Well, if you're like me, you may not really be good at a comeback. I'm not necessarily dim-witted, but I am slow-witted. I'm the guy that thinks of the comeback while I'm driving home. Well, the jerk store called and they're running out of you. You know, I think of that comeback. Some of you get, get that. And I actually, at time, I've, I haven't told my wife that I, I think that's sort of a blessing because I don't think of the, the witty comeback right on the spot and jab them like they've jabbed me. Usually I think of it later, and it, gi- it gives me a little bit of a blessing because uh, then I don't respond in like. Then I just sort of am quiet, maybe like Jesus was. Now, Jesus was neither dim-witted nor slow-witted. He could have roasted them right on the spot. He could have embarrassed them in front of everybody. But Jesus has given us all the perfect model of how to respond when we're persecuted. He did not get down in the mud with them. He did not wrestle with them and insult them with bigger and better insults. No, his response was perfectly tempered with the truth of God. His response even further illustrates his holiness, his deity. In fact, his entire response, his silence, his biblical quotes, his words, his demeanor are all an example for us when we face our own persecution, when we're insulted. Our temptation is to respond in like. But Jesus didn't do that. He was silent in terms of fighting and insults. All right, one more point of application and we'll be finished. This one is backing way out, zooming way out. Matthew's entire message is global gospel view of Christ, his trials, his death. What is this idea? It is that in the cross of Christ, in the trials of Christ, what we see is, number three, the just or the unjust. Who was righteous in this situation? Who was just? Certainly wasn't the judges, the accusers, It wasn't the Sanhedrin, it wasn't the high priest, it wasn't the rabbis, a multitude of religious leaders. It was the accused. It was the condemned. The whole story is upside down. It's exactly as God planned it, that the perfectly righteous one would give his life to save unrighteous sinners. Sinners like you and me. There were those in that courtyard who would eventually be saved. They were full of hate and sin. Jesus was giving his perfect life for them. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I just wonder if Peter, when he wrote those words, was thinking about when he was watching those trials, hiding behind the guards his own filthy heart, ashamed and afraid, in in denial. Christ suffered the just or the righteous for the unjust, the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. That's the whole point, isn't it? The only just, righteous person to ever live has laid down his life for the unrighteous, the unjust. There's Peter at a distance, sulking, hiding, denying. Christ, the just, the righteous, died for him. There's the filthy criminal who would soon die next to Jesus for the crimes he did commit. Christ died for him. 
There's a centurion, part of the cohort, who gathered together and arrested and actually executed Jesus, who eventually makes his way to the cross and cries out, truly this is the Son of God. Christ died for that man, the unjust. The just for the unjust. Matthew is setting up this theme in our minds and in our hearts. Let's pray that we would worship him as this. Lord, we thank you for what you've given us in this story, a picture of the just for the unjust. All these horrible criminals all around Jesus, hypocrites, men who had positioned themselves in society for power, for money, for authority. It was all upside down. They were supposed to be the ones that stood for justice, for righteousness. They were to be the ones that were to recognize the Messiah, but they did not. They killed the Messiah. And what a picture for us to understand. In a sense, we all put Him on the cross because of our sin. And He gave His life for so many of us. He ransomed Himself for Your glory and our benefit. So we want to worship Him as such. Help, him, help us to understand Him like this. Help Him to worship Him like this. As we think about Him dying on the cross, suffering these trials, Lord, what a horrifying time. Lord, even as this season moves on and we think about baby Jesus and all the beautiful things that happen around His advent, may we remember the reason we celebrate Him is because of what happened on the cross and what happened three days later. Lord, may we worship Him. May we think of this advent not just in the moment of birth, but the advent as the arrival of the Messiah, God with us, who gave His life for many. Bless us now. I pray for those who don't know you. Call them to salvation. Call them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, please stand with me. This benediction is inspired by 1 Peter 3, 18. Now may we go blessed and encouraged that Christ the righteous died for us, the unrighteous that we might be brought to God. And may we live and persevere as He did, for it is from Him and through Him and to Him that we live. Amen.